I invite you to turn to James chapter 5. We're in between sermon series. I, oops. Everything is okay. Recently, I've, I finished up uh, preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and Lord willing, next week we launch out um, into the book of, of Genesis. Um, th- th- but this, uh, this particular uh, Lord's Day, I would like to speak from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, and I will read that momentarily. I've, I've titled the sermon, How to Walk with God in a Variety of Circumstances, which that title is unlikely to win any publishing awards, but it is, uh, but it is hopefully clear and straightforward. The fact that, that God calls us to live as in His presence with, with, with respect to Him and in fellowship with Him and in accordance with His purposes and for His glory. We're, we're called to live all of life in the presence of God. And, and various scriptures will give us some very specific instructions about how to, how to navigate this circumstance or how to navigate that circumstance. And we, we want to we wanna pay attention to those instructions. If, if you attempt to do the right thing, if you attempt to do the right moral things and the right religious things and the right family and neighborly things, if you attempt to do the right things, but you attempt to do it independently of God, without His grace, without His empowerment, without His wisdom, then you are a moralist, but you are not a Christian. You are, you are doing life, but you're not doing life with God. The, the instruction of the New Testament in Colossians chapter 3 is, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do everything, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so we want to do life with God. And in James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, James highlights five types of circumstances, and then he gives us direction about how to walk with God in each of those circumstances. So let me go ahead and read James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Holy Scripture says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. 
Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's Word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit You would illuminate this passage. That You would put these instructions upon our hearts so that we might walk with You, honor You, and bear the good fruit that You intend. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to I walk through these five circumstances. I'm going to, right at the beginning here, I'm going to highlight these five circumstances, each in the form of a question. Uh, three of the questions come directly from the text. The other two questions I'm supplying as reasonable questions to ask in view of the instruction that James gives us in verse 16 and verses 19 and 20. So here, here's the five questions. Are you suffering? Are you cheerful? Are you sick? Are you weakened by sin? Has someone else wandered from the truth? So let's, let's walk through these five circumstances one at a time. First, are you suffering? Now, the, the, the truth of the matter is that we experience all kinds of suffering all kinds of suffering and all intensities of suffering on a regular basis. Um, this, this, apparently this word casts a pretty wide net to refer to many different kinds of suffering or hardship or trials. Um, e even within the book of James, James highlights several examples of ways in which we might suffer. Uh, for example, in James 2, 1-7, people might mistreat you because you are poor. Or in James 3, 9, people might curse you. In beginning of chapter 4, people might fight and quarrel against you. Uh, in James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, people might speak against you. They might speak evil against you or speak harshly or unfairly criticize you. In James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, the rich might oppress the poor. In James 5, 9, people might grumble against you. All kinds of suffering that you might experience because other people, either could be from within the church or it could be from outside the church because other people are troubling you and making life difficult for you. And there's also all kinds of, of general calamities and tragedies and difficulties that people experience in life. And what direction does, does James give us? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him complain. Let him get others to feel sorry for him. Let him plan a counterattack if, if, if you're suffering on account of other people's ill behavior. That's not the instruction that James gives us, is it? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him 
pray. Cool your jets. Calm your heart. Keep a level head. Nothing strange is happening to you if you are suffering. To be a human being in this sinful, cursed world is in large measure to suffer. And so, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the frustration, go to the Lord in prayer. Pray for help. If you go back to James chapter 1, in the midst of trials, seek God for wisdom and strength in His transforming power. If it is people who are mistreating you and that's why you're suffering, what does our Savior tell us to do? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Sufferers ought to be diligent to go to the Lord in prayer. And, and, and the, the instruction here is specifically to the one who is suffering. If you are the one who is suffering, you ought to pray. But keep in mind the larger New Testament instruction that as a body of believers, if, if one member suffers, Every member is to suffer with that brother or sister. We are to weep with those who weep. And so we also ought to share in the suffering and the prayers of those who are suffering. Question two, still in verse 13, in the middle of verse 13, are you cheerful? This is, this is a very interesting word that that James uses here he he doesn't he doesn't say um, are circumstances favorable is life great is everything going your way now of course there are times thank God there are times when there are measures of blessing that the Lord pours into our lives there are encouragements and there is peace and there is health and there is flourishing and of course uh, that may be part of what James is getting at here uh, that 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 you are cheerful in a in a, a as a fitting response to the the blessings and the encouragements that the Lord has put into your life nevertheless nevertheless the the emphasis of being cheerful is not actually on your circumstances. Even though, even though you might be cheerful in relationship to your circumstances. What did James tell us back in chapter 1? What should you do when you meet trials of various kinds? Count it what? Come, thank you. Thank you. Preacher. Count it all joy. So, here, here's the point I'm trying to make. Probably, probably James does envision on some level that, you know, you're not in the thick of suffering at the moment. There's some favorability to your circumstances and, and, and you're cheerful on that account. But nevertheless, if we're going to be honest with what James is telling us here, the real decisive issue is not the type or the level of your suffering or trials or your blessings and, and encouragements. The real issue is, do you, do you have a cheerful disposition? 
regardless of what's going on around you. Do you have a cheerful disposition? Do you have, do you have joy, peace, contentment? What should you do? Let him sing praise. And I, I just, I, I, re- I really want to encourage you here because I think that sometimes, too many times, we waste our cheerfulness. You see, when you're suffering, if you're, if you're a Christian, right, and you're suffering, there, 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 is, there, is a, there is a tendency to have the, the heart and the mind inclined to the Lord in the midst of your suffering to call out to Him in prayer and to ask for others to pray. And you can easily get into a spiritual frame of mind when you are suffering, when you're facing trials. But when you're walking along and you just you, you, you feel cheerful and you have a cheerful outlook maybe you think to yourself feeling really good night right now life is good i'm gonna i'm gonna i don't know i'm just gonna sit down and watch a football game because i'm feeling really good right now um and we need to hear this scripture as an encouragement to us to don't waste your cheerfulness turn your cheerfulness into worship Leverage your cheerfulness. Leverage your joy. Leverage your contentment to sing praise to the Lord. Don't waste the, don't waste the potency of that moment by letting it dissipate in trivial activities. But instead, praise the Lord. Take that, take that contented and joyful energy and sing a song of praise to the Lord. Th- this word that's translated sing praise, I, I looked up the, 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 the dictionary definition of the, of the Greek word. Uh, de- definition is pull, twitch, twang, play, sing. And I loved that. I loved that one, twang. <laughs> is anyone cheerful? Let him twang. Pull out the banjo. Strum the guitar, play the fiddle, lift up a song, make music, make melody in your heart, sing praise to the Lord. And again, if 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 one member is if one member is joyful, scripture instructs us to rejoice with those who rejoice. So even though the instruction is to you, the one who is cheerful, that you ought to sing praise, that you ought to make music, that you ought to celebrate before the Lord, then as a body of believers, others ought to share in your joy. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you cheerful? Praise the Lord. Lift up a song. And now let's go to question three. Are you sick? This takes us into verses 14 and 15. Starting in, in, in verse 13, James is brief and to the point as he counsels us to walk in God in seemingly opposite, but as I explained, not completely opposite experiences. Are you suffering? Are you cheerful? Just punchy, punchy instructions. Pray. Praise God. But here, he, he, he slows down. He refers to 
another type of experience. You might look at it as a subset of suffering, but this is a very specific experience that he talks about here, and he talks about it at some length. And so this third circumstance is that you are experiencing physical sickness or physical weakness, that you are facing the loss of bodily strength and vitality. And I think, I think that it is reasonable to assume that the sickness or weakness that James has in view here is serious and sustained. If, 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 if you've spent the day shoveling, if, if, if you spend tomorrow shoveling snow and you're, you come to the end of the day and you're exhausted and you're feeling a little bit cold and you feel like your strength has spent and you've got nothing left, you don't need to call the elders into action. Okay? Like... Enjoy some warm tea, get a bowl of chowder, take a shower, and go to bed. And you're probably going to feel a lot better on Tuesday morning. I, 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 I don't think James envisions that every occurrence of the common cold, every, every, every bout with these illnesses that travel about, or every occurrence of the 24-hour stomach bug or every occurrence of pollen-induced hay fever in springtime is supposed to result in some dramatic call upon the elders to come and pray over you. I, th I, think, I think avoid that extreme. But on the other hand, avoid the other extreme. One, one, one commentator got me thinking along these lines that James does not limit sickness to the last stage of a terminal illness. You know, he, he, he doesn't say, uh, you know, if anyone is basically at the end of the rope on death's doorstep, then that would be a good time to call upon the elders. No. So I, I don't think he, he's, he's, not, he's not dealing with either extreme. I think the, the sense of what I get from what his instruction is, is that th there is a range of serious sustained and debilitating sicknesses or physical weaknesses and at such times when the sickness or the weakness is overwhelming and unrelenting you are instructed to call for the elders of the church to come and to pray over you now as i mentioned in an email a couple weeks ago i i i i i really i really want to talk about this particular instruction this morning because I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's neglected. And you'll notice that there's a responsibility placed upon the one who is sick. Okay? But one of my jobs as a pastor is to, is to teach you the Scriptures. And so that's what I want to do this morning is I want you who might potentially be in this situation at some point in the future, I, I want you to understand what God's instruction is to you. If you are in this serious, sustained, debilitating physical sickness or physical illness, that you, you ought to call upon the elders of the church, not because that's what the elders thought was a good idea. This has nothing to do with what we as pastors, pastors and elders think is a good idea. 
the reason why you should call upon the elders is because this is the Lord's idea. This is the Lord's instruction to you. He is setting the terms of how you should live and how you should navigate the, the difficulties and opportunities of life. And so the reason that a sick person should call upon the elders of the church is because that sick person ought to want to obey Jesus. Obey Jesus and make a phone call or relay the message through a trusted friend that the elders ought to come and pray for you. Your job is to call upon the elders. The elders' job is to obey Jesus by responding to your summons. And then that brings us into the remainder of verse 14. Once the elders are summoned to the sick man or woman, what should the elders do? Now, keep in mind, th this, this isn't like, you know, drive-by you know, drive prayers, like it's going to be this kind of cookie-cutter thing where, boom, we show up, we get out, we do our little thing, and we're on our way. I mean, there's, there's, this is, the church is a family. There's going, to be, there's going to be some connection and some fellowship and some interaction trying to understand what's going on and the opportunity to, to encourage one another. But, but, J, J, but James focuses attention on the, the, the heart of the visit, which is to pray over the sick person. That's the, that's the primary instruction to the elders. That primary instruction is to be accompanied by anointing the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, the, the, the anointing oil is not medicinal. This, this, this is not some... Uh, medicinal application of oil in, in, with the thought that it might bring about healing. The oil is not to be understood medicinally, and the oil is also not to be understood magically. There's nothing, there's nothing inherently magical or, or you know, superstitious about the application of oil. Now, now, someone might ask the question, well, is... You know, is, is, is the oil, is the anointing with oil really necessary? Is it really necessary? And my answer to that question is, listen very carefully. Listen very carefully to this answer. The oil, in and of itself, is not necessary. But anointing the sick person with oil is necessary because the Lord commands it. It's like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Well, I mean, the reality is, is that the, the Lord has designed life. He's designed us as embodied human beings, and He intends for us to demonstrate our faith and our love and our fellowship in visible and physical and tangible ways. That's why we, we, we baptize into water. There's nothing magical about the water. We, 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 eat the, we, eat the, we eat the bread and we drink the cup at the Lord's table. There's nothing magical about that little wafer and that little cup. Or if we're, if we're praying for someone or commissioning someone into ministry, we might lay their hands on them. 
on their head or on their shoulder. The New Testament says, greet one another with a holy kiss. We might, we might deem it appropriate to, in our context to do the holy hug or the holy handshake. But, but the point is, in many ways, there, there is to be a, a physical, tangible expression of our faith and our love and our fellowship with each other and our trust in the Lord. Hence, here, it is necessary for the elders in this situation to anoint the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord because that's the Lord's instruction. That, that, I, I, think, I think we can, we can understand that anointing oil to physically and tangibly symbolize the Lord's gracious presence with His people and His love for the brother or sister who is sick. So the elders might, 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 might they respond to your summons and they come and we take a little time for fellowship and for conversation. Perhaps we would, perhaps we would sing over you or read scripture over you, but then we, at, at some point we, we would anoint you with oil and then we would pray for you trusting the Lord to work mightily in your sickness. And that leads to the promise of verse 15. Uh, people can really struggle with, with verse 15, by the way, because it's such a bold promise. It says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So there, there's, a, there's a promise here that the prayer of faith, that is the, the faithful elders who were praying unto the Lord with confident expectation, trusting the Lord's goodness and kindness to heal, that the Lord will work, work through that prayer to bring healing to the sick person that one who has been laid low by physical sickness or, or weakness will be raised up. There's, there's, there's physical healing and physical restoration. And if, if uh, there is a, a, a sin issue in conjunction with the sickness, then the sick person will also be forgiven of his or her sins. Now, I'm going to tell you what, how, how, I, how I process a verse like verse 15. And I want to say a couple things about it. The first thing I want to say is, if we faithfully and humbly practice verse 14, then I believe that we will experience the reality of verse 15. Now, I don't think, I don't think that verse 15 is a blanket guarantee that immediate healing is always going to happen in, in a person's life. And, and there's, a, there's a number of reasons why I think that. Remember that it is not the purpose of any particular verse of Scripture to tell you the whole story. That's why we have the whole Bible and we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay, uh, So let me give you a number of reasons why I, why I think, that, think that way. To begin with, sometimes there's a real mystery to the Lord's will. And James told us in James chapter 4, middle of verse 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, 
we will live and do this or that. Job went through quite a season of suffering, didn't he? I suppose if the elders of the church, I'm speaking, uh, there wasn't a church at that time, but you understand the point. If the elders of the church had come and done this for Job early on in the process, I'm, I'm assuming that he wouldn't have been healed yet because the Lord had a purpose for Job's suffering, including the boils on his body, his physical ailment. Uh, the Lord had a purpose for that that is somewhat mysterious. And another possibility is, now steward this, steward this idea very carefully. Don't wield it like a club to beat people down. But we have to be honest about the fact that if, if the elders are not praying in faith, or if the sick person is not repenting of sins that are related to the sickness. Remember, there may be no sins related to the sickness, but if there are sins related to the sickness, then that's going to block the possibility of healing. I mean, it's not going to block, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't block the possibility of God healing, but in terms of what God's trying to accomplish here through the body, that it blocks, it blocks the healing. Another thing to keep in mind is uh, the apostles, the apostles had the, the ability to heal others, including the apostle Paul. The apostles outrank the elders, and here the responsibility is given to the elders. But you, I don't get the sense from reading the apostle Paul that, that he viewed healing as some kind of, you know, guarantee thing um, in his back pocket that he could just pull out at will. You know, he, 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 he in, in Philippians 2, he talks about how Epaphroditus had fallen ill. And he was so thankful that the Lord had mercifully restored him. At the end of 2 Timothy, he talks about how one of his colleagues, I think his, his name, name is Trophimus, was, was, was ill. But in, in neither situation do you get the sense that, that Paul was just like, oh, you're, you're sick, Epaphroditus? Boom, you're healed. It, you, you don't get that sense. So... So, I do believe, I do believe, if we live verse 14, we will experience verse 15, taken as a whole, but you have to understand that, um, that there remains mystery to the Lord's will. His calling upon us is to walk in obedience and to walk in faithfulness. And so, let's do that. Now, as we transition to verse 16... There's, uh, there's something else I want to explore a little bit, and that is the relationship between sin and sickness. It is, it is wrong to assume that if someone is sick, the reason they are sick is because of some pattern of sin in their lives. It is, it is wrong to assume that. Do not assume that someone is sick on account of his or her personal sin. However, it is also wrong to assume that sin has nothing to do with it. So if, if you want things to be neat and tidy, oh, it's always this or never that, you ought to find a, a different life to live than this one. This is not neat and tidy. Okay? But the reality is, is that sometimes 
a pattern of sin is the reason, or at least a, con- a significant contributing factor to the sickness. And this can happen in at least three ways. Number one, some sins are inherently bad for your body. So the relationship is direct. You're, you're, you're sinning in such a way that by the very act of those sins, you are undermining your physical health. Second, sometimes the effect of sin on the body is indirect, but if you are carrying around boatloads of anxiety, boatloads of guilt, boatloads of shame, boatloads of bitterness. Do you really think that doesn't affect your body? It does. And the deeper it goes and the longer it lasts, the more your body will suffer on account of the shame and the guilt and the anxiety that is bound up with your sin. A third possible explanation for the relationship between sin and sickness is the fact that that God may directly afflict you with sickness or illness as as an act of discipline upon you because of your sin. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that that because of the way that some of them were approaching the Lord's table and that the way that they, they really weren't having proper regard for the Lord and for their brothers and sisters. Some of them were weak and some of them were ill and some of them even had died. So do not assume that someone is sick as a result of his or her personal sin, but don't assume that that person's sin has nothing to do with it. And I'll tell you this, I don't know if this applies to anyone this morning. I'm okay if it doesn't apply to anyone, but the Lord knows whether or not it does. Okay? Perhaps it would apply to a few. I I really don't know. But I do want you to know this. If your physical maladies are connected to your sin, then you need to understand that all of the physical and medical and therapeutic and nutritional interventions to restore your physical health are not going to work because that's not the real issue. There are, there, are, there are issues where there are physical and medical and therapeutic and nutritional interventions that you ought to pursue as a good steward of your body. But if you are suffering illness or weakness on account of your sin, then you need to understand you've got to deal with the sin. Okay, now we're ready to transition to verse 16 because what, 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 what's going on in verse 16 is Paul is taking the, the logic of verses 14 and 15 and now he's making a wider application, okay? He, he's, he's saying, hey, look, do, do, do you understand that the Lord, He's gracious? Yes, yes, we, 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 we fall into 
sins of various kinds. And when we do, the Lord is gracious and ready to forgive. And sometimes we experience sickness in relationship to the sin. And the Lord is ready to forgive the sin and heal the body. And sometimes we experience sickness. And it has nothing to do with our sin. But, 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 but Paul wants you to understand that given the reality that some of us, some of the time, experience weakness on account of our sin, Paul wants you to see, James wants you to see, the Lord is gracious, the Lord is ready to forgive, the Lord is ready to restore, and now you Christians enter into that reality by doing verse 16. Therefore, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This word healed while it can relate to uh, healing in a broader sense, um, do, does typically refer to physical healing. And I just want to encourage you with this thought that, that, that there may be healings that the Lord wants to pour out on this church family and on you or on a loved one, and He's waiting for you to do the first part of verse 16. He's ready to heal. He's ready to go. He's waiting for you to follow His instructions. Confess your sins to one another. Of course, of course we, 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 we should confess our sins to the Lord first and foremost, but there are also times, whether it's in ruptured relationships or just because we, we, we need the encouragement and accountability of, of brothers and sisters, where we, we acknowledge our faults, we confess our sins and our struggles to one another, and then we pray for one another. We're agents of the Lord's mercy and grace and with, with confident expectation of the Lord's gracious presence in our midst. We bring those brothers and sisters before the Lord in prayer. And as we do that, the Lord heals His people. So, are you, are you weakened by sin? Confess your sins to your brothers and sisters and pray for one another as a church family that you may be healed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over verse, the rest of verse 16 and then 17 and 18 until the very end, and I want to go to the fifth circumstance in verses 19 and 20. Has someone wandered from the truth? The, the first four questions I, I was asking of, of you personally, are you suffering? Are you cheerful? Are you sick? Are you weakened by sin? Now the issue turns to, do you know someone? Someone who was once part of the Christian community, at least outwardly, they were, they were part of it and they had learned the Bible and they appeared to be walking with the Lord, but now they've wandered from the truth. Do, do you know someone like that? What is your responsibility? Now obviously, one of the things we ought to do for someone who has wandered from the truth is we ought to pray for them. All right? J James has been talking a lot about prayer and especially the power of prayer in verses 17 and 18. But nevertheless, the, 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 the instruction here in verses 19 and 20 is if you know someone who has wandered from the truth, your responsibility is to do whatever you can to bring him back, to bring that wanderer 
back into fellowship with God and back into the fold of God's people. And while prayer is part of that, bringing back a wanderer involves communicating with them, pleading with them, going to them, or giving them a phone call, or writing them a letter, and and humbly and kindly and gently but firmly pleading with them to return to the Lord and to be forgiven of sin and to be rescued from the folly of their ways. So in these ways, we are called to walk with God in these various circumstances. Now I want to come to the end of verse 16 where James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer is not the only instruction in this passage, but prayer does loom large. The English word prayer or prayed or praying occurs seven times. Matthew Henry that commentator of hundreds of years ago, calls attention to the fact that in verse 13, you are called to pray. And in verse, in verse 14, you are called to call upon the elders to come and pray. And then in verse 16, you're called to pray for one another. So, so prayer looms large in this passage. And James tells us that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Sometimes we will say something like, There's power in prayer. There's power in prayer. But we need to think more precisely about what what we're talking about. Okay? Okay. There is not power in simply uttering the right prayer formula. As if the right prayer formula, like a magical incantation, has power to do the thing that you want done. Prayer is not powerful in that sense. Prayer is not magic. In fact, prayer is bound up with, I say, powerful prayer, effective prayer, is bound up with the praying person being righteous. Right? The prayer of a righteous person. An unrighteous person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Paul, I'm sorry, James in chapter 1 talks about how a, a, a wildly doubting person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord either. It is a righteous person, a, a, a person who is in a right relationship with the Lord. They've been forgiven and clothed with the righteousness of Christ and now transformed by the Holy Spirit. They are seeking to walk in the ways of the Lord, to live obediently and faithfully and righteously. That's, that's a righteous person. It's the prayer of a righteous person that has great power. And then James gives us an example. Elijah. And you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, let me tell you about Elijah, that great prophet of the Lord. Man, he stood in the presence of God and powerfully prayed to the Lord and things happened. And you, ordinary Christian, you're not like him. Now, if James had written that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'd, I'd just say, I'm okay with that. If, if, if the Lord wants to highlight the fact that I'm not like Elijah, that's his prerogative. I'm okay with that. But that's not, that's not what's here. What, what, what's here is, 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was, he was subject to the same temptations and the same weaknesses and the same doubts and the same struggles. And so what, what James emphasizes here is not the uniqueness of Elijah's prophetic status, but the, but the ordinariness of Elijah's fallen manhood. He was, he was just like us. And, 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 and that's an example to us. Elijah stood before the Lord and prayed and the heavens were shut and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then, after three and a half years, he stood before the Lord and he prayed and the heavens were opened wide and the rain came forth and the earth bore fruit. Matthew Henry comments on this passage, thus you see Prayer is the key which opens and shuts heaven. And I'd really, I'd really like you to catch a vision here. I'd like you to catch a vision here. Because the Lord invites you as a son or daughter to exercise influence before His throne. He's, he's calling upon you to pray if you're a sufferer, to pray and then pray for those who are suffering and call upon the elders to pray and then pray for one another. We're to be a praying community. And don't we want heaven to open up? Now, obviously, in Elijah's case, it was literally talking about the rain. But, but don't, don't, don't we want spiritual rain, forgiveness, restoration, wanderers brought back, struggling sinners within the fellowship healed and strengthened and sanctified and people healed and raised up and empowered for service. Don't, don't we want that kind of blessing to come forth from heaven into our community bearing fruit on the earth through a very ordinary church like South Paris Baptist Church? Isn't that what we want? We're called to step then into the place of prayer. I, I, I got to give you the final thought here on the power of prayer and then we're done. Ultimately, prayer has no power. And ultimately, people, righteous people praying has no power either. But the source of the power is God. God has the power to forgive sin. God has the power to raise up. God has the power to heal the body. God has the power to bring forth awakening and revival and renewal and transformation within the body of Christ. The remarkable thing is, is that He invites us to, to partner with Him, not because He needs us, but He wants us to be His faithful sons and daughters who participate in what He's doing. And therefore, I urge you to stand in the place of prayer. Stand in the place of praise. Stand in the place of seeking those who have gone astray. And let God bring forth His power and His blessing through your life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would open the heavens upon our little community here to bring about awakening and revival and sanctification and holiness and spiritual earnestness and love for one another and humility and even healing 
We, we would delight to see those who are weak or ill raised up, restored, strengthened, made effective in service and ministry. So Father, I pray that you would teach us and shepherd us to walk with you in all of these circumstances. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.